What do you think most people in our society think freedom is? It's easy to find dictionary definitions. So one of those is freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Or another definition is freedom is the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. Looking online where this question was asked about what do you think freedom is, um, what does freedom mean to you? One person says, to me, freedom is not only being free, but feeling free. To do, to say, to be literally anything whatsoever and however, wherever and whenever, because I am myself and only I own me, therefore, come what may, I believe I am free, free as a bird. So not everybody is that expansive in their view of freedom, but most people recognize that there is some responsibility in, in being free. Uh, but, but for many people, freedom is free to make their own minds up about things without compulsion, freedom to choose what is right for them, um, just basically self-determination. That's where the average person probably thinks freedom is, to determine my own way. What we're going to see today from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, is that no human being is free from one ruling power or another. They're either under the power of sin or of righteousness. So let's look at Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. And would you stand for the reading of God's word? We'll start with verse 14 where we left off last week. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of the, those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing as far as the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Would you grant us your word piercing and purifying us teaching us, opening our eyes to who Christ is for us. Help me to make it clear in the way that I speak, 
Guard me from error. Cause your word to be clear, clearly taught and empowered for our good. In Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Some people will agree that while we may be saved or made right with God by grace, we still need the law to restrain sin and keep us doing what is right. So they object to what we read in verse 14. That sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. They object that by saying that we're under grace, not law, we give people a license to sin. But what that means is not being under law doesn't mean that we don't keep the commands of God's word. It means that we're not any longer under the old covenant. We're not any longer under the old covenant. Um, we, we, we still obey, for example, love your neighbor as yourself. But now we do it under grace, which means the fulfillment in Christ. So the objection that, he's, that Paul is addressing here, verse 15, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace, by no means, is dealing with that issue. The old covenant under the Mosaic system could not free people from sin's power. Grace frees us. So verse 16 He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So Paul's answer is simple. Whoever you obey, you are a slave to that one you obey. In this case, if you are obeying sin, you are a slave of sin. Or if you are obeying obedience, so to speak, understood to to mean obedient to God, then you are a slave of obedience. Everyone on the planet is either a slave of sin or a slave of obedience to God. He doesn't leave any other options. We tend to like leaving the large gray area that, hey, I'm kind of in between that. Paul says, no, you're either or. Because you're either under law or under grace. And if you think that way, that think that sin's no big deal, that you can sin willfully and freely, It proves that probably you're still a slave of sin, not of obedience to God. Now, the slave talk you may be struggling with, and we'll we'll talk about that in in a few minutes, because that's a hard image for us to to embrace as being positive, because he uses it both positive sense and negative sense. So we'll talk about that shortly. Living as a slave of sin contradicts grace because... uh, what Paul taught in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 6 was that grace is not just forgiveness of sin. It is that and certainly includes it. That's a huge blessing for sure. But it's not only forgiveness of sin. By, by grace, God unites us to Christ so that sin's power over us is broken and we are alive to God. In other words, by grace, we will become more and more like Christ who obeyed God perfectly Grace is the power of Christ's death and resurrection for us and in us that overcomes sin's enslaving power. And Paul states the, co- the connection right up front between what you are enslaved to and the results, which he says is either eternal death or righteousness. So if you're a slave of sin, that results in eternal death. And if you're a slave of obedience to God, then that leads to righteousness. He does this to make clear the utter incompatibility of grace that grants eternal life with a li- with living a life dominated by sin. 
And in verse 17, he's answering this question. How do people change from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness and of God? Paul thanks God. He says, I thank God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have been become obedient from the heart. He thanks God that, that they became obedient from the heart. But Paul credits God as the ultimate cause of a person's change from being a slave of sin to being obedient from the heart. It's God's grace and power that produces obedience. So God does it. It's his grace. He makes the change. That God makes us believers in Christ to be obedient from the heart means that he restores our hearts to what he created them to do. Our hearts are meant to find joy and satisfaction and delight in serving God and doing God's will. The stereotype of the Christian is that he or she would really rather be enjoying the pleasures of sin, but because he's religious, he just um, is miserable by keeping God's repressive rules. That's kind of the stereotype. And hopefully none of us are living that out. The truth is God frees our hearts to find joy in, in serving him. But it's not apart from the teaching of God's word that makes people obedient from the heart. Paul says he thanks God that they became obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which they were committed. He doesn't say that they, they committed themselves to a standard of teaching, though that would be true. But he says that they were committed, in other words, by God, to a standard of teaching. This is what he thanks God for. So God has committed them to this form of teaching. The word... Um, were committed or literally handed over means being delivered over to another power as a slave is handed over from one master to another. So Paul says that they were committed to a standard of teaching. He, he says they're committed to a form or a standard of teaching. That, that word means pattern or imprint. He uses this word rather than just teaching because he wants to emphasize that God works through he hands them over to the teaching to shape, mold, and transform them so that they obey him in specific ways from the heart. So God, he causes the teaching to be effective, to transform his people into more and more being like Christ. And in verse 18, the teaching to which God com committed them both sets them free from sin and teaches them that through faith in Christ they are set free from sin. So it liberates them from sin and teaches them that they are free from sin. And therefore they become slaves of righteousness. The idea that there are some people who are slaves to sin and others who are free from being slaves to anything is wrong. To be a slave of something is to be under the mastery of an authority. It is to give total commitment to it. To be a slave of sin doesn't mean you're constantly, flagrantly, just openly, grossly sinning. Uh, maybe some of us do that, but maybe most of us are feeling the constraint to not do that. But um, what it does mean is you're never free from sin's mastery. Its influence impacts everything about you. To become a slave of righteousness means that now you're under the authority of God's righteousness. Now you're empowered to love and live in righteousness. When Jesus healed, he gave new capacities to walk, to see, to hear, to, um, to be freed from demonic oppression, to be freed from disease. And he did that in mercy, for sure, as a sign of the coming kingdom, when those things would be totally done away with. But he also did it as a symbol of 
his freedom uh, is freeing us from sin and for righteousness, giving us new capacities to, to live and obey him freely. And then in verse 19, he, he pauses to, to talk about why am I using this imagery of, of slavery? Because that's a tough image. He's, um, he's acknowledging the limitations of human illustrations, of human capacities to grasp God's truth through imperfect illustrations. Like, for example, I used to try to use, to give illustrations of the, the Trinity. How can the Trinity be? I quit doing that. There is no good illustration for the Trinity. But ice, water, no, steam, that doesn't work. Um, egg, no, no, no. Illustrations are helpful, but, but many times they, they just don't quite tell, the, tell you the whole story. And so using slavery as an image is, is an imperfect illustration. The illustration from slavery is especially inadequate because of all the, the negative baggage associated with fallen human slavery. For example, our own history of slavery in the U.S. is awful because that involves stealing people from their home and pressing them under the authority of someone else against their will. In Paul's day, many sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. Or even if they didn't have debts per se, they, they just did it for economic benefit. And they could buy themselves out of slavery and get a, a ticket saying, I'm free. So um, it was sort of normal in the Roman Empire, which doesn't mean it was an okay or good thing. It just was what it was just common in the empire then. That doesn't mean that slavery was good. It just it just means that slavery hasn't just involved stealing human beings. God is a perfectly good and merciful master, but that doesn't mean in this life being God's slave doesn't involve hardship. Jesus himself took the form of a slave. Literally, it's the same word in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. He took the form of a slave by becoming a human being so he could die for us. So it cost him pain and suffering to be God's slave, but he did it not because God didn't love him, because they had the perfect love relationship as God's son and father. But he did it to redeem us who were slaves to sin and, and disobedience. God is a good and perfect master in this life. Being God's slave involves fighting sin, struggling to obey. It involves pain and suffering. But as this passage teaches, it is worth it as it is part of being on the path of eternal life. In fact, in Revelation 22.3, most of our translations don't capture this, but it calls us his slaves. So one day, being God's slave will be entirely purged of all suffering and filled with joy. But again, the imagery of slavery pictures that God is our master to whom we owe total commitment, total obedience. And he continues in verse 19, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and, and to lawlessness. Just as you presented your members, your, your capacities, your heart, your hands, your eyes, your feet, your, um, your resources, your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. Why does Paul say that you presented your capabilities, your capacities as slaves? Because you yielded and devoted your capabilities to impurity and lawlessness. You believe that obeying impurity and lawlessness was better than not doing it. And even though this slavery led to more lawlessness, you kept up your slavish devotion to it. 
So consider Homer Simpson. Homer was, didn't have any change, and he wanted a soft drink from a pop machine. So he stuck his hand up inside the pop machine to grab, and he, and he got a hold of the pop can. Because he didn't want to let go of the pop can, his arm remained stuck in the machine. So he drags the machine around rather than letting go of the machine. Then he sees a candy machine. And he wants some candy, so he takes his other free arm and sticks it into the candy machine, and now he's stuck on both machines. That is what it is to devote yourself as a slave to lawlessness. Which leads to more lawlessness, so much so that you are willing to suffer hardship to present your members to lawlessness. You won't let go of sin, even if it hurts. You keep dragging it around. Um, those outside of Christ are submissive to sin as a power that exercises authority over their lives. But their slavery is not forced, it's not coerced, as if they are submitting to sin against their will, rather they willingly obey sin. They are slaves to sin in that they carry out the demands of their master. This doesn't mean that those with addictions or habitual sins never want to stop their behaviors. They may hate the consequences of what they do to their families, their friendships, to their bodies, their jobs, their minds. But the desires for these things are greater than their desires to be freed. I think of a couple men, not in this area, who had years of consequences from using porn. They had plenty of good counsel and long-suffering wives. One lost his job directly due to, to the use of porn. Uh, the other, the other's porn use uh, morphed into more impurity and lawlessness to where he ended up in jail. They had uh, lots of times where they seemed to break free, but they kept returning back to it. And uh, they both, both of them have lost their marriages. But Paul says, just as you presented your members as slaves to sin, so now present your members, your capacities, as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. With the same devotion you once had to sin, so now be committed to righteousness. That leads to sanctification, which means set apart for a holy purpose. In the process of sanctification, we become more and more holy, more like Jesus, more and more godly. I think of a man who um, he, he was raised in the L.A. area. He had been part of a gang. And he, he got married, and um, he uh, was, was quite a mess in his life there for a while, in his marriage, and he, they had kids, and it was continuing to be a mess just in their marriage and with trying to raise their family. But he continued uh, under the teaching of God's Word, the standard of teaching to which God had committed him as he had come to Christ somewhere in the midst of that. And today he's serving as an elder in, in a church, a former church. Maybe you have not had the, the deep experience of those kinds of sins, but maybe you've left your first love. Maybe, maybe you don't love Christ like you used to. 
Um, maybe, maybe it's pride, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's unforgiveness. Continue to pursue righteousness because that's what your privilege is in Christ. It's encouraging that devoting yourself to righteousness leads to growing in holiness. That's the promise. Um, think of something that you used to be good at or used to be no good at that you're good at now. Maybe driving. Hopefully most of you are getting better at driving. Cooking, music, um, running, whatever. We know that good skills and health don't just happen without dedication and commitment. We can't expect to grow in holiness without commitment. But he says in verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you had no commitment to righteousness. You, you felt free in regard to righteousness. You had no desire for it. You felt no obligation to it. You weren't under its power. But in verse 21, he says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What did you get from that? What good has come out of doing those things which you are now ashamed? What, what resulted in your physical health, your emotional well-being, your finances, your relationships, your marriages, your, um, children's lives, or your work from the shameful things of your past. And not only that, but the ultimate consequence, he says, of these things is death. And he's, we all die physically, so that's a given. He's talking about eternal death. Um, separation from God. He's talking about going to hell. That's where unbroken sin leads. But verse 22, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, leads to growing in holiness. There is a sure connection between being set free from sin, becoming God's slave, and growing in holiness. And the sure result of sanctification is eternal life. That's the connection he's making here. Sanctification, being made more and more holy, is necessary for eternal life. He's made the answer very clear to the question he started at the beginning. Are we to sin that grace may continue? Are we to continue in sin because we are not under law but under grace? And his answer is, if you live as a slave of sin, you will suffer eternal death. If you live as a slave of God, you will have eternal life. Which brings us to the, the verse that we love the most out of this passage. We, most of us have it memorized, many of us do. In verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what he's saying is to sum up and restate his main point. The wages of sin is death. How do wages come to us? How do we get wages? We do something for which we deserve the wages. If your life is dominated by sin, you will be paid what you have earned, which is eternal death. Eternal suffering, separation from God. It's horrible beyond horror. The consequences of unbroken sin. But in contrast to the wages of sin is not the wages of righteousness. The contrast to the wages of sin is the free gift of God. Eternal life is God's free gift. This means there are only two types of people in this world those who are earning the wages of sin by living as slaves to sin, or those who are living as slaves of God who devote themselves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, leading to God's free gift of eternal life. Now, some of you might say, isn't that a contradiction? 
to say that um, eternal life is a free gift, yet that it results from living as a slave of righteousness that results in increasing holiness? How does a free gift come to us? We receive it. And Paul says the free gift of eternal life is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So by receiving Jesus, which means believing in Him, putting our trust in Him, we receive God's free gift of eternal life. And what Paul had said in the earlier part of chapter 6 was that by grace God unites us to Christ so that sin's power over us is broken and we are alive to God. So by grace we will become more and more like Christ who obeyed God perfectly. Grace is the power of Christ's death and resurrection for us and in us that overcomes sin's enslaving power. So in other words, Christ is our grace. Jesus is our eternal life. He is God's free gift of life, who is God's power for salvation for all who believe. He is the gift. He is the one who frees us, who liberates us from sin for grace and power, joyful, obedient slavery to God. So no, it is not a contradiction to say that eternal life is a free gift, yet that it results from living as a slave of righteousness that results in increasing holiness because it's all the result of God's grace in Christ. But to say that receiving Christ by faith, living righteously, growing in holiness, is all enabled by grace, doesn't mean we don't exert effort, as if we just passively coast along waiting for God to do what he commanded us to do. No, by his grace he gives us new desires so that we become obedient from the heart to the teaching of his word. But still, we must believe. We must obey. We must repent when we disobey that is what he has freed us for. No, we cannot, we do not earn eternal life by our own efforts. Only Jesus could and did earn it for us as a free gift. But because he is at work in us, having freed us from sin, we will live in increasing obedience to God in righteousness. And that's good news. In fact, take that verse this week and share it with somebody. Is there anybody at all in your circle that you could share this verse with? That the wages of sin is death? Wow, that'll wake up somebody. Hey, did you know the wages of sin is death? But God's free gift is, is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord? Share that this week. Let's pray. Father, your grace is intensely powerful because it was accomplished and brought for us in Christ, your Son, who had no sin of his own, who broke the power of canceled sin and set the prisoner free. Your blood can make the foulest clean. Your blood did avail for us the blood of your son Jesus in his death and resurrection has powerfully, decisively broken sin's power over us and granted us a righteousness that endures. That's all of grace. And yet, Father, we live in a battlefield. We are so still vulnerable to sin's temptations, to worldliness, to not loving you first, to just 
being lazy with our faith, to not embracing the freedom we have to overcome long habitualized sins. Father, help us to help one another in encouraging one another by speaking your word to one another, by praying for one another, by being patient and gracious and forgiving of one another. May we be a community of people who are being healed and repenting constantly, growing more and more to be like Jesus. Father, it's all of your grace. Your free gift is Christ. And Father, I I thank you so much for giving us Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.